Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this week by ExpressVPN and Circle. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. I am in between trips. I was just on a vacation, and uh, I'm going to see you in just a couple of days. Yeah, it's true. There is a liftoff happening, happening soon mm. as we record this. Very, very soon. Um, we're going to Houston. We are. So you are on some sort of baseball vision quest <laughs> this summer? Yeah. No, nope. there's no there's no vision, no questing, but I am going to visit a couple of, uh, of, of ballparks in the state of Texas. Uh, one of which is in Houston, which gave me the idea that perhaps at the end of that trip, I should uh, go to the Space Center. And then I suggested that you come along because you're practically like on the outskirts of Houston in Memphis. And right. Yeah. That's how that's how it's geography works. Really how the South works. But sure. I mean, whatever. <laughs> it seems like it's all right there. Uh, and so uh, so you're coming over and we're going to going to go to the Space Center in Houston. Yeah, I'm super excited. I've never been to Johnson. I've been to Kennedy, but not Johnson. Mm-hmm. So it's another one off the uh, ye olde bucket list. Yep. Yep. Another thing named for a president. And um, people, whenever we say we're going to be somewhere, people ask, oh, are you going to have a meetup? Are you going to do an event? Is there something going on? Um, I, I think the answer is we will, we're going to be there Sunday and Monday. And so Sunday night, August 4th, if you're in the Houston area, uh, I guess watch the Liftoff Podcast Twitter account to see, and we'll post something there because we don't know where we're going to be, but we're going to try to go somewhere, I think, on Sunday night and hang out and say hi to people if people want to uh, come by who are listeners to this podcast. So I guess watch the Twitter account for uh, for that announcement because we have to figure out where we're going to go and we don't know anything about Houston. I guess if you have a suggestion of someplace near the Space Center that we could go and, and meet people, uh, we could do that too. Like a, it's going to be like a bar or something, so people can like have a drink and say hi. But we'll, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll figure that one out sometime in the next few days. Yeah, sounds good. We will. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I really am. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be great. And then our next episode will be our uh, report back about uh, everything we saw in Houston yeah. at the Space Center. And then that's how you make it a work trip. I want to be in that uh, mission control. I want to be in that mission control room. That that's uh, going to be one of those people who says, "Hey, I funded this with my." Ten dollars on Kickstarter or whatever. That's right. Yeah, that'll be really cool. So keep an eye out for that, and uh, hopefully, Houston, we will see you this weekend. Yes. So we need to get to some pre-flight checklist items, uh-huh. and I wanted to start with the Starhopper, if we could. This is SpaceX's test bed for the Raptor engine. This will grow up one day. It's a caterpillar now, but one day it'll be a beautiful butterfly rocket. Is that how it works? Mm, I don't think that's how rockets work, but you never know. There's always something <laughs> new under the sun. They go into a cocoon and they come out of rocket. This is, uh, you know, we've, we've seen pictures of this. This is the vehicle that toppled over. So now they're just using the bottom half. It's a test vehicle. It's a prototype. And after a, uh, a scrub earlier last week, uh, last Thursday, they finally got its uh, first flight. About 20 meters, 65 feet or so off the ground. It is tethered. This is just a, you're lighting the motors and giving them a little bit of load to deal with. It's, it's not a uh, a particularly exciting test, except you can watch the GIF and it sort of skitters around on the launch pad and you can see it kind of rise from 
what is a very fiery smoke ball situation <laughs> on the pad there. But yeah, it's a it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I love that video. There's uh, on Twitter people were like, "Oh, there's a video. I don't see a, any Starhopper here." And then somebody pointed out that if you peek right above the flames, you can see this little thing go boop. Oh, there it is. Boop. There it goes. Hello. It just pops out a little bit, but it did move, and that's the point. And there, this is how we test new things like new rocket engines. This is one of the things that happens, and it's kind of cool to have it happen uh, on, in a, in a place where we can actually see it happen on, on uh, camera. It's kind of fun. You want to tell us about a near miss with an asteroid? <laughs> All right. So, yeah, an asteroid came to visit. And we didn't get it anything, and it just passed on by because I thought they're so ungrateful, the Earth dummies. It's called 2019 OK. It's not OK. Not OK. Uh, it was between 187 and 427 feet long. It's 57, uh, between 57 and 130 meters for those who are metric, thinking metric in, in, in diameter. And if it had hit the Earth, it would have been pretty bad. I don't want to overstate it. This is not like one of those movies where there's a giant asteroid and it hits us and the whole Earth is destroyed. It is more like the size of whatever hit the Earth's atmosphere over Tunguska in Russia in the early 20th century, um, which if you've ever read anything about the Tunguska event, which I did after um, after this near miss happened. Uh, it's fascinating because, like, that was that was a large object like this that basically airburst. It it's small enough that it didn't even really hit the ground. It just kind of came apart and exploded in the atmosphere. But the the uh, if you remember anything about the uh, what you read about the Tunguska, then it's like the uh, trees all knocked down in Siberia mm-hmm. in the forest in a in a you know in a big circle around like for miles and miles and miles around um, the center of the blast and. Uh, the reports suggest that nobody was killed. There was animals were killed, but no people were killed because um, it was in such a remote area. And that's something to remember when we talk about small objects hitting the Earth is that uh, most of the Earth doesn't have people on it. It's water or right. it's desert or it's uh, forest and there's nobody around. If it hit over a city, it would be really bad. But um, Tunguska, the thing that I didn't realize, um, which is really funny, is that it's in the remotest part of Siberia, basically. It's 1909, I want to say, and this happens, and people are like, oh, wow, that was weird. And, (laughs) like, nobody really even investigated it for, like, 10 or 20 years afterward, where where they finally went there and found all of these uh, trees knocked down, and then in the center of the trees were still standing, but kind of just like telephone poles, and because the force had come straight down. Um, but it took years and years before anybody really even investigated what happened. It was so remote in that uh, in that era. Anyway, uh, twenty nineteen okay did not hit us, but it did come very close. You know, be- between the Earth and the Moon distance, kind of. You know, it was it was close uh and scientists think that uh, maybe every 300 years or so on average something this size hits the earth so just something to keep in mind there's a lot of garbage floating around in the solar system you never know what might happen um and it it, it's small and it came kind of out of the sun and nobody saw it so uh another reminder that we may want to continue to step up our our uh, efforts to patrol the space around us and uh uh so we can eventually avoid getting hit by stuff like this. Right. And of course, the bigger an asteroid is, the easier it is 
it the easier it is for us to see it. So True. the the near Earth object office uh, at NASA, they're tracking a whole bunch of stuff. But you know, this rock it it was big, but there are much bigger, scarier rocks out there, and those are easier to track. Um, in fact, out of the near Earth objects that are larger than a kilometer across. NASA believes it's mapped more than 90% of them. So we know where they are and, and where they're going. And if if you go bigger than that, so you go 10 kilometers across, that would basically wipe out life on Earth or almost all of it. Those are – we know where they are. They're in stable orbits. They're not you know, sort of zipping through on these crazy trajectories. Right. But yeah, something like 2019, okay, it's below that threshold. And it's something that uh, – Hopefully, as the science technology gets better and we continue to fund this work, we find more and more of them. Yeah, I saw that there's that cool graph that basically is like as the uh, as the size of the object gets more, it's like what will kill you, what will kill mm-hmm. people, and that's like the tsunami and the wind, and then eventually it's like and then the thermal if it if it's really if it reaches the ground and it's really hot, that that alone will do it. But uh, there's lots of different ways that big rocks in space can kill you if you uh, let them. So don't let them, is what I say. That's an uplifting topic. Anyway, 2019, okay. It's not okay. Okay. No, not okay. Okay. No, not okay. <laughs> you might tell us about our first sponsor. All right. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by ExpressVPN. You may think that nobody wants your online data. Who are you? You know, you don't. they don't care about me. Uh, but when you use the web... Or the internet in general without anything to protect your privacy, you risk bad people, and those could be criminals, those could be uh, privacy brokers, you know, personal data brokers, ad companies collecting your data. And it does happen to all of us, which is why you need to use a VPN like ExpressVPN. It runs in the background of your computer or phone. ExpressVPN encrypts your data, hides your public IP address. That's really important because that is used to target you and identify you. And that is not something that you can just switch on a browser setting to hide um, because you're on the internet and that means you have an IP address. So with ExpressVPN, you get a different IP address. It's a cloaked IP address and they don't know who you are. It was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It uses new cutting-edge technology called Trusted Server that makes sure there are no logs of what you do online. It costs less than $7 a month and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I have put this on my iPad. Super easy to use when you travel. Um, If you're outside the U.S., if you're an American and uh, you can uh, open up a VPN connection to the U.S. and then it's like you're back there, get access to your uh, uh, video service that doesn't want to show you videos that you paid for when you're in a different country. You could do that. That's very nice. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash liftoff for three months free with a one-year package. Take back your online privacy with ExpressVPN expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Thank you, ExpressVPN, for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. Do you know what time it is? I'm hoping it's for my very favorite segment. Ooh, it is indeed time for SLS segment, Space Launch System segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. SLS segment. We've spoken several times about the Green Run. Just to, to recap what this is, it is a full-length full power test of the SLS 4 RS25 engine. So it has those four shuttle engines at the, at the core stage. And this 
puts them all together on a test stand and basically runs them full tilt for the full length of the uh, the launch, which is about eight minutes in length. It's two million pounds of thrust. There had been discussion that this test may have been on the uh, chopping block because SLS and, and now Artemis, there's a deadline of 2024. And to do this test takes months. You have to get all of the engines to Stennis Space Center in Mississippi. got to hook it all up. You got to do the test. You have to do all this analysis. And there was a segment of people, a group of people who thought that maybe this could be skipped and we could save some time on that schedule. And uh, this comes from Jim Bridenstine, NASA administrator, saying that the green run will move forward. So he had this tweet, and there's a link in the show notes uh, to a page on NASA's website as well, uh, basically giving reasons that astronaut safety is the number one priority. uh, The green run increases the probability of a successful moon landing, and it is important to discover issues with the rocket earlier rather than later, which are basically the three things we discussed when uh, the story broke that the green run uh, could be on the out. So I, I for one, am am glad that it is uh, has has been uh, stuck back into the schedule. You know, the 2024 deadline is is unlikely, mm-hmm. but to cut corners to try to hit it, especially when we're talking about safety, just that never made sense to me. I don't think it made sense to most people. So uh, the green run has gotten the thumbs up. Yeah, forgive me for making a guess about what happened here, but uh, I've seen this enough that it's generally a new person comes in and says, oh, come on, why are you doing these things? We could do better. And then um, they say, in this case, we can do better. Maybe we won't do this thing. And then they learn what they need to learn about the details. And then they go, oh, that's why. And then mm-hmm. it's back. That seems to be what happened here is new group rolls in. Uh, people from the outside are sort of taking shots and saying, why are you doing this? And then you dig in and you realize why they're doing it. And that's, yep, yep. So we're back where we probably should be when it comes to astronaut safety. Absolutely. Uh, so this this will take place um, at some point. I don't know if NASA has really given a date for this yet, but it will be in the, you know, the coming months because, uh, well, depending on who you ask, when you ask, the SLS will launch at the end of next year or mid-2021. So this will be um, before that. Okay. Again, that was a statement of dates regarding the SLS. Well, yeah. I, you could just edit that out with like blah, 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 and it would yeah. just as much <laughs> like there were, those are dates. I heard them. <laughs> yeah. They, those are words. Uh-huh. They represent time, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. It's the SLS yeah, we, segment. There's no yeah. time in the SLS segment, Stephen. It could go on forever. Who knows? It's really true. We knock Elon Musk for that, but uh, you know, it, it it happens to all sorts all sorts of organizations. Mm-hmm. Really, there is some. Uh, you know, look. Let's just be honest. The SLS segment is kind of a downer sometimes, right? We talk about budgets and schedules, and mm-hmm. so far. There's not been a lot of... <laughs> and not under budget and ahead of schedule, by the way. No, not that's, that. That's not... No. Opposite not, of that. Not what we talk about. So far, there's not, there's not been a lot of uh, big milestones that we've covered in this segment. But we we now have one. There have been some little ones, but this one feels pretty big. So during the Apollo 11 media blitz that we all just survived, uh, during uh, some of that at Kennedy, 
Vice President Mike Pence, you know, he gave remarks at the Neil Armstrong Operations and Checkout Building. And in that, he announced that uh, the Orion vehicle for the Artemis One mission is complete and, and is basically beginning preparations for flight. Uh, he called it the Orion crew vehicle, Artemis One, of course, not crewed. Something else, by the way, if you remember, Jason, was also discussed that maybe we just put crew on the first one. Not not a good idea. No, no that was also not. <laughs> they did it with the shuttle and they got lucky. And so I don't want to do that again. But uh, this this Orion vehicle is it is not a crew vehicle, but it's also not quite like the Apollo uh, the Block One. Remember we talked about that in the early Apollo missions, how they had sort of versions of the uh, command module that they really – the stuff to keep humans in there wasn't there. It was mostly, mostly for testing and outfitting and sensing the things the command module would go through. This Orion is closer to that. So it it has the uh, the shape and, and most of the components, but it's really designed for testing. So Artemis One is going to take this Orion capsule on the SLS, uh, basically around the moon, Apollo 8 style, to test its system. Mm-hmm. They will do a reentry with it and make sure that all of that is good to go. So it is an important mission, but it is uh, when the data is, again, is, you know hand wavy yeah but it's good that we've got we've got the uh this capsule that has been has been completed and the service module which was completed already Mm -hmm. and and so they get to put those two kids together in one configuration and they can do some testing and stuff but it's like here are the vehicles that are going to get put on top of the sls and launch that's a it's a good milestone you know we're still waiting for the rocket but yeah Absolutely. So the service module was provided by the European Space Agency and partners. It's been done since the end of last year. It's at Kennedy. It's like you said, they're going to join them at Kennedy, and then they'll be flown in the Guppy, which is that big airplane that Mm. they put uh, spacecraft and rocket parts in, and it will be flown to the Glenn Research Center in Ohio. The Glenn Research Center is home of what I think now may be my favorite NASA facility, the Plum Brook Station. I have a page of this in the show notes if you haven't ever come across this. And it is in Ohio, and it is home of these test facilities to basically stress out spacecraft. So they have a huge vacuum chamber. It's 100 feet in diameter and 122 feet high. So they can put these spacecraft in a huge vacuum chamber and make sure that they stay pressurized the way they're supposed to. They don't have any issues. And then they also have the reverberant acoustic test facility, which they mount these spacecraft to. And it basically simulates the noise and and vibrations in the mechanical vibration facility of a launch. So we talk about all the violence of the Saturn V. The SLS will have all of that as well. And you want to make sure that nothing shakes loose, that the, there's no issues with acoustics, there's no issue with vibration, and all that gets done in Ohio. So it's it's a pretty neat facility in my book. Yeah, I I didn't know all these details. I thought, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I'm impressed that they don't refer to the reverberant acoustic test facility as RAT-F, because <laughs> it's right there. It is just, just, or just right there. Or as RAT, the RAT. Maybe they just call it the RAT. That's cool. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, if you've seen a picture of the reverberated acoustic test facility, it's like a white room with um, a wall that is filled with about a million different giant speaker things that look like kind of like speakers, but they're actually tunnels. Uh, it's wild stuff, but uh, we got time. We're going to shake and blast this thing and make sure that it doesn't fall apart because, you know, that would be bad. And it would be a waste of a rocket launch. It would be a waste of waste of a billion dollar SLS rocket launch if it turned out that some of the stuff like shake it off during flight. Right. You got to mm-hmm. get that locked down first. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to round out the Plumbrook Station talk for a second, mm-hmm. they also have the in-space propulsion facility, which they do abbreviate to ISP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can get your and, internet from there. Yeah, it's a uh, internet and vacuum uh, company all, all in one. Oh, so it's it a Roomba. Is... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, boy. Sorry. Oh, Jason. Jason. <laughs> I take it all back. I give up. Oh, the so Roomba they... would be an awesome acronym for something. I wonder what it would be. We'll, mm. we'll work on that. I'll workshop that one. Yeah, you got to background in that thing up. So in this facility, they test upper stage launch vehicles and rocket engines under high altitude conditions or simulated high altitude conditions. So if you think about, you know, we've all seen the SpaceX launches where the the lower stage falls away and they use the Merlin vacuum engine to push the second stage to wherever, whatever they're deploying, wherever they're deploying it. The ISP is designed to test that sort of thing so they can have a uh, a motor or a vehicle exposed to low ambient pressure, uh, and actually indefinitely, which is pr- pretty interesting. They can cool it off so it's really cold. They can uh, do dynamic heating to simulate uh, like orbital paths where you're in and out of sunlight. Uh, so all of this is done at the Plum Plumbrook Station, and I'm totally on board. I'm Team Plumbrook. I just got to say it. I'm Team Plumbrook. All right. Maybe we'll visit there sometime. Go to Ohio. <laughs> Go into a room full of speakers. <laughs> yes, and then run away before we're shaken into little pieces. Something yeah, that's like not that. a place you want to be. You no. don't want to be any. You don't want to be in that room when they're using it. That's for sure. Definitely not. Vibrated to death. Mm-hmm. It's probably messy. You don't want to. Do you don't want to go that way. Okay, so radiation overlapping overlay monitoring in. All oh, right, I'm still working on Roomba. I'll, I'll get there. Okay. All right. Well, I'll follow up with you on that. Okay. Maybe you can. Maybe you can get there. I wanted to follow up a little bit about the Lunar Gateway. Oh. This is this is like oh. a half step out of the SLS segment, uh-huh. but the uh, there's some news, mm-hmm. and the news is that Northrop Grumman, a name very familiar to anyone following along with all the Apollo, the Apollo stuff, uh, they have been uh, uh, selected to, or they have a contract to build the minimal or skinny. Uh, gateway part of it at least they're building the habitation module it will be joined eventually with the propulsion energy module being built by maxar but this is uh this is not the international space station so we think about the iss it's enormous the size of a football field lots of modules solar panels everywhere lunar gateway at least at the beginning is going to be extremely minimal really just to uh have a couple of astronauts be able to go, you know, park the Orion there, get on board the station, get on a lunar lander, which we're going to talk about in a second, and then go down to the moon. So this is not a like a long-term habitation station at, at this point. It is basically what I've come to think of as a floating locker room in the sky. Yeah. Just go in, you get changed, you take your other car out. So Yeah, in fact, it's not um so it's it's 
interesting in that they've basically kind of bypassed. They were going to do a whole bid process, and and they and NASA basically said, in the interest of speed, we're going to just give this one to Northrop Grumman uh, based on an existing ship, uh, an existing cargo ship design that they've got. So they're modifying kind of their own cargo design. As far as I can tell, it's not going to even have a life support of its own. So the idea there is, you know, bring your own astronauts, bring your own oxygen. Uh, that's not it's not meant to do any of that. It's really meant to be kind of a docking area where you can you can park stuff and transfer from one vehicle to another. Um, and the apparently one of the bidders for this was Bigelow Aerospace, my uh, buddies, who, who with their inflatable modules. Mm-hmm. Um, and their their president put out and founder put out a sort of a sad blog post about it, although it was sort of like trying to cheer themselves up. Um, because their whole thing is that they they can create a lot with an inflatable module. They can create a uh, large space for less um, because it's not rigid. And uh, they're still hopeful. They said that that at some point down the road, uh, NASA may decide to make Gateway a little bit more homey, and uh, a, a an inflatable module might be able to let them do that. But in the in this initial configuration, it really is just sort of a transfer block with some parts it's like an adapter flying you know around the moon extremely minimal mm-hmm. it's based on the cygnus spacecraft which we have talked about before because that's the one they set the fires in sometimes leaving the space station to study fire in space yeah uh, multi-use this makes sense to me i think if you are under this pressure to get this thing done moving to a company that already has a platform you can use just I mean, clearly that's the way to go and I think uh, Bigelow and others will definitely get their shot at this later on. I think there are, you know, there are plans to expand what the Lunar Gateway is, but for this 2024 deadline, we're talking what is the the minimum that we need? You know, you, you don't you don't need things if you're only there for a few hours that you would need if you're there for days or weeks or months. And they, I guess, will expand upon that as time goes on. Yep. So Lunar Gateway, it's a uh, it's a thing. But uh, it's a very moving, minimal thing. Moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, we have a lot of lunar lander stuff to talk about. There's just a lot going mm. on. But let me tell you about our second sponsor first. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Circle. Every now and again, a product or service comes along. And when you hear about it, you'll wonder how you ever live without it. And Circle is one of those products, I think. And I'm excited to tell you about it. So if you have kids, you, we've all heard the five more minutes plea Five more minutes of Netflix or YouTube or Minecraft, and uh, it's easy to see why we can in that situation. And Circle is the easiest way to manage your family's online time across all their devices. And what's really cool, it works both uh, in and outside the house. So they can be uh, out and about. You can still see what's going on. The Circle Home Plus works with the Circle app, so parents can filter what content is allowed on devices set limits for screen time, monitor history and usage, and each family member has a profile that's fully customizable to their needs, age, and maturity. Uh, They sent me a Circle Home Plus. I plugged it into my network. It's just this little box that's on the shelf with my other network equipment, and it was really easy to set up. I've tried a bunch of different filtering solutions over the years, and a lot of them are not very fine-grained. You can set kind of categories, but it's difficult to say, These categories are allowed on these types of devices, but these devices belong to these kids, need a different set of rules. And Circle makes that really easy to do. I had it set up the way I wanted uh, really pretty quickly, and I've been really happy with the results so far. 
Right now, listeners of Liftoff can get a super limited time offer for $30 off a Circle Home Plus. Go visit meetcircle.com slash liftoff. That's M-E-E-T-C-I-R-C-L-E dot com slash liftoff. And enter the code liftoff at checkout for $30 off. That's meetcircle.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to save 30 bucks. You're always going to worry about your kids, but with Circle, you can make sure they have a healthy relationship with their technology. So you have one less thing to worry about. Our thanks to Circle for their support of Liftoff and Relay FM. All right, we got to talk about Lunar Partners. Yeah. Lander drama. Mm-hmm. There's, a lot, there's a lot of stuff here. There's a lot of scrambling going on because there's uh, this, this deadline that they're not going to meet <laughs> for the landing somebody on the moon. So there's a lot of activity happening. You got to do it... Uh, all at once, <laughs> you know. It's it's these are all parallel tasks. You have SLS, you have Orion, you have Lunar Gateway, and of course you have the lander. So we're going to start t- with talking about some uh, partnerships that NASA has announced. Some of these are sort of lunar in focus, but others are with a cut with an eye cut towards Mars because you know all of this is still sort of under the the Moon to Mars branding, I guess, if you will, you know, they just, I don't know, I don't want to get into that today. But it's, uh, these partnerships are designed to to move the ball forward in a bunch of different ways. So uh, SpaceX is listed, as uh, you would assume, that's the one that sort of gotten the headlines. Uh, NASA and SpaceX will work together to advance technology to vertically land large rockets on the moon. Lunar landers, of course, are very small and very lightweight by design and by necessity. And uh, SpaceX is building a, a giant rocket that one day will hop beyond just a test bed. And they're going to work with NASA on how to do that on the moon. Part of this is advancing our understanding of the uh, the exhaust from rocket motors and what it does to the lunar surface and the soil on the lunar surface. Oh, man. We're going to talk about this on later Apollo missions. But uh, there there were some studies in the Apollo Time frame where they sent a lander and then basically brought down uh, like an uncrewed like robotic lander and then brought down the lunar lander near it and part of that was to see if we land this close to it you know the lunar dust is is it's not eroded and smooth like things are here it's it's jagged and sharp and can really cause damage to nearby structures and with no atmosphere it uh, once it's airborne and with so little gravity. It can really start moving and be in movement for a long time. And if you think about combining that with a big rocket, you don't want to be in a situation where you are basically sandblasting everything around it. And if you think really long term, if you think about extended lunar missions or even permanent habitats on the lunar surface, at some point you're going to want a vehicle somewhat close to structures that need to be there for a long time. And so this is beginning the work of understanding that relationship. Right. This is one of those things where I read a story the other week about this that that is probably the one that you're also thinking of where where you know large items, large rocks could basically get blasted and with such force and the moon's gravity is so light that they could go like around the moon basically and then at the at, at high speed. And essentially what I took away from that was Pretty quickly, if we're going to put people on a on a moon base, we're going to have to figure out how to make uh, concrete, basically something like that, and create a landing pad for lunar landers. Because uh, otherwise, the debris is going to be a, 
a, a severe problem every time you take off and land on the lunar surface. SpaceX and NASA will also be working on transferring propellant in orbit or be even beyond low Earth orbit. If you think about uh, a mission to Mars and a spaceship as large as the, uh, the you know SpaceX Starship or even things past that, you're going to need to refuel and. Uh, NASA or SpaceX has sort of shown that in concept videos before. NASA has done work studying uh, these things. You have liquid oxygen, hydrogen, methane. They're difficult to work with here on Earth, but in the the harsh environment of space, it becomes much more difficult. Uh, In my reading, it even seems like hydrogen atoms can migrate through some types of metal fuel tanks, which seems bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an extremely complicated problem. And so NASA and SpaceX are also going to be putting engineers together to work on this under this new new program. There's an article over on Ars Technica about this that goes into uh, some more detail about the the technical issues. Uh, There's there's a quote in here from uh, a former chief technologist in NASA, uh, Bobby Braun. He says, basically, every, every study that's been done about long-term space exploration in space refueling is always like an item on those lists. It always comes up. And so this is something that we need to master if we want to uh, put big spacecraft on Mars or crude spacecraft even beyond. When we're talking about small robotic missions like New Horizons, for instance, those things are uh, in, in on their way to their destinations for a really long time. And we use things like the sun and other planets to slingshot them using gravity to accelerate them. And it's okay if a robotic spacecraft takes nine years to get to an outer uh, outer planet. But if you're talking about crewed missions, that's a really long time. That's a significant time away from home, far yeah. beyond what, what we're able to do now. And so you've got to use propellant. You've got to use more propellant than these smaller vehicles are using. And uh, so this is going to be an issue. Yeah, also this uh, sort of tangentially related, but one of the things that they talk about about uh, going to the moon is the possibility that you could mine uh, resources on the moon. So like water ice at the south pole of the moon, that's hydrogen and oxygen. You could potentially generate fuel out of that. Um, and getting that stuff off of the lunar surface is a lot easier in terms of gravity than mm-hmm. off of the surface of the Earth. And that way you have access to materials uh, that are uh, are cheaper fundamentally. So there's lots of different angles to this. Um, the potential for having spacecraft that could you know, be refueled. So you, you know, you, you create a supply chain where you've got a fuel depot and so you can get something up fairly cheaply and then, and then top it off and send it on its way instead of having to have it carry all of its propellant with it. Um, you know, this is one of those things that it seems science fictional in a, in one way, but it, it really is something that you have to deal with if you're thinking of long range, use and exploration of the solar system. So uh, Eric Berger, who wrote that story at Ars Technica, you know, it seems like a very technical point. And uh, what Eric Berger said was, no, this is huge. This is a this is a big deal because this is NASA and SpaceX starting this process of saying, let's get serious about uh, refueling rockets in space. Pretty, uh, pretty wild stuff. (laughs) Uh, there are a bunch of other companies listed in this document. I also want to talk about uh, Sierra Nevada, our favorite 
tiny space shuttle company. That's that's dismissing them a little bit, but they're working on that. <laughs> it's adorable. Uh, I love the tiny space shuttle. It is adorable. They're also working with NASA on two entry, descent, and landing projects. Um, they, their tiny shuttle is the dream chaser, of course. And they're going to work with uh, Langley to actually capture infrared images of it as it reenters the atmosphere uh, to understand how that uh, descent and the heat shield and all that stuff. You know, they're using a thermal tile system like the shuttle uh, to have a better understanding of that. Um, and they're also going to work to um, to mature a method of recovery of upper stage rockets using basically a, a decelerator they could deploy. Right now, upper stage vehicles are, you know, they're basically left there or shoved off into some other orbit or they eventually come down and burn up. We talk about reusable rockets. We're really talking about the lower stages. And so Sierra Nevada Corporation is going to uh, be working on that problem, which is pretty exciting. The more we can reuse, the better, of course. We also have Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company. Uh, They are going to work on high-temperature materials for liquid rocket engine nozzles. Blue Origin, we, we, we talk about them a good bit, but they really, I think, have become sort of a uh, an engineering powerhouse that people – we I think it's easy to view Blue Origin through Jeff Bezos' vision of we're going to do some space tourism stuff, but we want to become basically the railroad for space commerce and, and you know building infrastructure. And they may get there, but the their engineering so far has been – I think really impressive to watch. And this is another step in that direction. They're also going to work on fuel cell power systems for the Blue Moon Lander, which Bezos unveiled about a month ago, uh, a lunar lander concept. And this system would be designed to provide power during uh, the lunar night, which could last uh, as much as two weeks, depending on, on where you are on the moon. And so this uh, this fuel cell would need to generate quite a bit of power to keep uh, not only the lander itself, but of course its occupants uh, warm to keep them uh, with uh, you know all their life support systems running. It's a very important critical piece. As we look, maybe not at twenty twenty four, but we look beyond that initial landing. You know, NASA is talking about these longer and longer duration missions, and even the later Apollo missions weren't on the moon all that long. And if you want to extend your stay there, you need systems like fuel cells that can keep your craft um, energized for days or even weeks on end. So Blue Origin is going to be working on that. To round out this list, we have Lockheed Martin working on systems to grow plants in space. Uh, Some of that happens on the space station. I know on my first NASA social trip uh, at, at Kennedy, we were briefed on some of the uh, the technology used on the space station to, to grow lettuce and to grow other things. Uh, Lockheed Martin is looking to uh, propel that research. Again, longer origin flights let, uh, to, the, to the moon, let alone Mars, you're going to need to grow things uh, on that mission. You can't take everything with you. And so they're going to be working on that and also working on new uh, techniques with working and forming metal and metal alloys for lunar hardware. So a bunch of these these companies partnering with NASA – sort of attack different problems, again, all in parallel. The further we get into Artemis, the more we're realizing how many things have to move forward all at the same time. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, the existing Lunar Lander program has had some uh, some drama or some issues, I guess you could say, or they're playing a game of Survivor and somebody was kicked out of the tribe. Basically, back in May, 
uh, NASA announced that robotic landers for uh, just to bring stuff to the surface, because, again, it's been a while since we've landed landers on the surface. Uh, there, there are not that many. China's got something there, but the U.S. is not uh, doing so much. So they, they, they made this deal. Uh, robotic landers are going to be built by three different companies, Orbit Beyond, Astrobiotic, and Intuitive Machines. They would fly missions to the moon via this program called Commercial Lunar Palo Services, CLPS. Uh, clips? Claps? I don't know. Clips. Uh, I'm going to go with clips. Okay. New Jersey-based Orbit Beyond was scheduled to fly the first of these missions with its Z01 lander in September of 2020. However, Orbit Beyond realized it was not going to be able to hit the deadline that was a part of their agreement with NASA and basically asked to be removed from the program, which is interesting. Sort of put up their hand and said, we can't do this. So the other two vendors, Astrobiotic and uh, Intuitive Machines, are still working on theirs. NASA says it's still on track to have science payloads delivered to the lunar surface in 2021. Astrobiotic has proposed to fly as many as 14 different payloads to a large crater on the near side of the moon, uh, Lacus Mortis. Uh, by July 2021, Intuitive Machines is proposed to fly as many as five payloads for NASA to Oceanus Procellarum, a scientifically intriguing dark spot on the moon, by July 2021. So there's still a lot of activity here for the next couple of years, but one of the three partners has sort of opted out and been released from its responsibilities by NASA. Better now than later. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually kind of appreciate that, that the contractor is like, no, we can't do this it's not going to happen mm-hmm. and uh we we I, I wonder what miscalculation they made they they felt confident they could do it and it turns out that they couldn't but um anyway there's a lot of moon activity happening uh including of the uncrewed variety at this point so there's a lot going on there um hey Stephen, before we close i had a couple I, I have a couple tiny spacecraft notes okay are the notes tiny or the spacecraft tiny both Ooh. <laughs> I just we didn't mention this in the pre-flight checklist, but I wanted to throw it in just because I, I, there's so much going on in space stuff right now that we wait a couple of weeks and things happen and we just blow right past them. So I want to mention the Planetary Society deployed LightSail 2, which is a CubeSat with a solar sail. And the idea is they want to they want to show uh, the power of a solar sail. The idea there is you've got a big uh, kind of n- a mylar sail and uh, the solar wind hits it and it can affect a spacecraft. And the idea here is that the solar wind, we talked about propulsion and and having fuel depots, which is important for crewed missions. But for uncrewed missions, for robot missions, one of the uh, power sources in the solar system is free and it's the solar wind. If you could build a big solar sail you could potentially drive spacecraft at fairly high speeds eventually and you know because you're you have to pick up speed gradually mm-hmm. uh, through the solar system which is a great idea but it's never really been put into uh, a lot of practice it's sort of just been a, a science fiction idea and uh, you know a little tiny test here and there so with lightsail 2 what the planetary society is trying to do is actually use the the uh, solar sail to deform the orbit of LightSail 2 so that on on uh, the sunny side of the Earth, it will raise its orbit, which will actually cause it to have a lower orbit on the other side. Um, 
and that's sort of the point is they want to see how much they can change the orbit of Lightsail 2 ultimately to the point where it burns up in the atmosphere. But that's that's kind of what they're trying to do with the experiment is just show practically in space what a solar sail can do, which is pretty good. So it's 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 out there. The uh, the, the sail is is raised. And uh, I thought that was a pretty cool little uh, mini satellite story. Very cool. And my other mini satellite story is about a company called Made in Space, which is a startup in California. And they want to do a CubeSat that has a 3D printer on board. And the idea there is they want to, uh, they want to create technology that lets it 3D print items uh, in space because it makes it easier to carry materials in a 3D printer is the idea than to have to fold up uh, parts of the spacecraft. So the idea here is that Maiden Space wants to create a CubeSat that will print its own um, solar panels uh, when it's in space, which is just a cool idea. Really so, cool. <laughs> and, and of course, when we talk about the, the fuel depots, 3D printing in space is also a big thing because, again, if you have raw materials, you can make materials in space or on the moon where it's going to be easier to get the materials out there than to carry them all the way from Earth. But in this case, the idea is you've got, obviously, to have the raw materials come from the Earth, but then you don't have to worry about the physics of packing them all into a small space. Like the light sail having its unfurled thin mylar solar sail, you end up with a very small packed spacecraft getting off of the Earth's surface, but then it's able to become a much more functional spacecraft once it's in space uh, and can take advantage of the fact that it can grow to whatever size it needs to grow. So it's a cool idea. I love it. Yeah, 3D printed solar arrays in space. That's a, that's a fun idea too. So that's my uh, two stories about tiny spacecraft uh, that will have very thin uh, things extended from them. That's what they've got in common. <laughs> there's, a, there's a picture of the Made in Space CEO, Andrew Rush, standing next to one of the 3D printed solar arrays, and it's three or four times longer than he is tall. So this is, this is a, a good-sized solar array. I love the idea. We wanted to wrap up this week by marking the death of Chris Kraft, who just quite simply is legendary in NASA history. Uh, he died on July 22nd at the age of 95. And uh, I have not read his book. There'll be a link to it in the show notes, though, but it is now uh, on my list. But I want to talk a little bit about just how influential Chris Kraft was, not only on you know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, but really, I think, still in the way that space travel, both crewed and crewed, is still um, managed today. Chris Kraft was NASA's first flight director, but he kind of invented the job and the way yeah. that something like mission control operates. Um, so he started in flight research actually turning down a job at NACA, which would become NASA in 1958. Um, but when NASA was formed, he was invited to come help put an American into orbit uh, and became one of the original 35 engineers assigned to what would become Project Mercury. So ground floor, day one type stuff here. And I guess when you have 35 engineers and you're on day one, you just look at somebody and say, hey, we need an example mission plan. 
And Chris Kraft, thankfully, was the uh, the guy that that task was given to, and, and it turned out that he was perfectly suited uh, for the job. And this is before Mercury had communication, ground support. Uh, this is basically a blank page, right? <laughs> it's very early, very early on. And he came up with the the mission control concept that we all know from not only the Apollo days, but that continues today with uh, the International Space Station. It was used in the shuttle program, uh, the European Space Agency and Russia. Everyone uses this template, and it, it came from Chris Kraft. And the uh, the idea, of course, as, as we know it well, is that you would have a team of engineers and system experts in the room monitoring and gathering data and feeding that data up to the flight director when called upon. And of course, uh, it's, a, it's a pyramid, you know, triangle type structure. We have the flight director at the top. Below him, you have the, the engineers in the room, and they all have their back rooms full of people who are monitoring things and feeding information to them. So the data is coming up organically through the structure up to the flight director. And that puts one person in charge of making decisions, but they have they are armed with all the knowledge of these this wider and wider base of people below them. And the, the chain of decision-making is actually clear. If you listen, especially during uh, the Apollo 11 festivities, there are a lot of places where they're playing the different flight loops, and uh, they talk about it in great detail on 13 Minutes to the Moon, that great BBC podcast about uh, Apollo 11. Uh, and And what I was struck in listening to it about how it really is this, it's not just a technical detail of how do you manage a large group of flight controllers. It's a management strategy. And mm-hmm. Chris Kraft invented it. And the idea there is that while the flight director is in charge and has ultimate authority, the distribution of authority is powerful. And so, and you hear it in these people who are in their early 20s, a lot of them who are in charge of various things, they've got their back rooms that they're talking to, it bubbles up to them. And you hear it in those moments where uh, he says, let's go around the horn, like uh, Gene Kranz did that for Apollo 11. But it's like, again, invented by Chris Kraft, the idea that he goes through every single uh, every single person, every single department with a go, no go. And when they say go, you know, they are making a management decision. And it, it, ultimately, the flight director could say no go, but uh, he's empowering his people to say go. And it's just it, it's it's a it's a really remarkable system that that obviously didn't have to be invented this way. But this is how people use it to this day. So it's just it, he is a giant in the field and, uh, and for lots of reasons. But the whole creation of what we think of as mission control comes from Chris Kraft. Mm-hmm. And his plan was proven to work during uh, the Mercury, uh, Mercury Alice 5 launch in 1961, crewed with a chimpanzee. Um, it had to be deorbited early following a failure of the attitude control system on the spacecraft. And Kraft was in this flight director role and made the decision, hey, we're going to deorbit it. We're going to do it in a way where we can bring uh, the chimp back. So a, an early example of a single person making this decision. He made the call like 12 seconds before it would have been uh, problematic and difficult to bring uh, Enos the chimp back to Earth. That's a kind of a wild mission you should go read about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that car- his 
his service as flight director carried forward for all six crewed Mercury missions. Uh, one, he split the duties with somebody else just due to the the time it would take to be in the room. Um, and then he served as the head of mission operations for Gemini, seeing uh, overseeing a team of flight directors. Of course, Gemini, the missions got longer and longer, so no one person could do the job. And right. you get to Gemini and Apollo, and you have different teams of uh People working on those consoles, different different flight directors. Yeah, they create different like color teams, right? And, White and, team, green team, etc. And every every flight director had their color, and when that flight director was no longer a flight director, that color was retired, which is a really interesting little, yeah, uh, little little tidbit. Uh, but he was always there. Um, you know, he was uh, after Gemini Seven. He was planning uh, Apollo missions. He would have probably served as a flight director for Apollo One, but after the fire, he really sort of stepped into a more managerial role, which is probably the right thing to do, right? Like he, they needed somebody to be more of a supervisor there, and so mm-hmm. he was bringing in his flight directors, and he was sort of the the parent of the flight directors. He reworked the timeline as the as the Lem fell behind schedule. Um, uh, this led to Apollo 8 taking the command and service module around the moon, of course. Uh, and during Apollo 13, he was actually called back into mission control to help out as uh, they, like all hands on deck to, to, uh, to solve that. So he was definitely the mother hen of mission control. And then mm-hmm. ultimately in 72 was, uh, named director of what we now think of as Johnson Space Center, the manned spacecraft center in Houston, where we will be soon. We'll be there just a few days. Uh, during um, that uh, time frame, so like a 10-year time frame where he is director of uh, MSC, now Johnson, you think about that time frame, that is the beginning days of the shuttle program. So you have that being under development. So not a lot of uh, active crewed missions. In fact, there was a gap there, but uh, he's sort of getting the building blocks in order for the shuttle, just as he had for Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. But he ended up retiring in 1982 in the wake of STS-2, the second shuttle launch. STS-2 is a story for a different time. So I've I've tried to like compile this into the shortest explanation I could after reading a bunch of stuff. It was supposed to be a five-day mission. It was cut short when one of the three fuel cells on Columbia malfunctioned. One thing the crew was supposed to do in those later days was to test Canada Arm, which was attached to the bay of the shuttle – uh, of course, would be used later to uh, pluck things out of orbit, put things back into orbit. Um, there's going to be a version of this at Lunar Gateway eventually. A very, a very important piece of hardware. And the crew of Joe Engel and Richard Truly, they were actually like pretty unhappy that they had to scrub that testing. They viewed the work as really important. They wanted to do the work. And so they skipped a sleep period and worked during the loss of signal periods as the shuttle was orbiting the Earth. You know, they would lose radio contact at different times. Uh, so Mission Control was unaware that they actually went forward with that testing <laughs> without ground support. Um, both of these men flew later shuttle missions and truly be actually what became um, a director at NASA later on. So it didn't kill their careers, which I found surprising. But needless to say – it created quite the rift between for a while between the astronaut corps mission control and nasa administration and during the after this time um craft kind of i think viewed it as a sign that it was 
it was time to retire from his position. And uh, and he did. And I think it for someone who had been at NASA at this point since its beginning in 58 and really kind of there before NASA was NASA, obviously a huge change uh, to the organization. But the stru- to his credit, the structure he had built uh, was maintained throughout the shuttle program and, again, uh, ISS. And it'll be this type of organization will be what supports Artemis. Uh, it's really his legacy, uh, despite sort of going out during this this bumpiness around STS-2. Yeah. And then uh, so post-NASA, he was a consultant. This I feel like every time we talk about everybody's post-NASA careers, it's a very similar story. Uh, were mm-hmm. they on some corporate boards? Were they? You know, uh, he was a consultant for several companies in the mid-90s. He was appointed the chairman of the Space Shuttle Management Independent Review Team, which was tasked with investigating ways the shuttle program could be more cost-effective. Uh, in the end, the Kraft report recommended that the space shuttle uh, should probably just be outsourced to a private contractor. And privatized the space shuttle, which obviously didn't happen. But, you know, he was viewing already that the space shuttle uh, sort of didn't make sense in a lot of ways financially. And uh, uh, people didn't like it. Um, The Columbia Accident Investigation Board quoted it as a factor in uh, NASA having relaxed its safety standards in the lead up to the accident, too. So that's, uh, you know... The space shuttle is also a topic for another time to talk about again, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's a whole mess there. Uh, but suffice it to say, uh, as we said, Chris Craft was a huge person in the, in the field. Johnson Space Center's Mission Control Center is now the Christopher C. Craft Jr. Mission Control Center. In his honor, he was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 2016. And I would say it's no coincidence. You hear about people uh, hanging on when they're very ill, when they're dying, to hit some sort of milestone. I think it's very clear that Chris Kraft wanted to live to see the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 um, and then uh, died shortly thereafter. But what a life and what a legacy for him. Absolutely. Uh, another just giant in in uh space history uh, we've lost. And uh, Eric makes this point in his article about it that there are dozens of people of like the 400,000 who worked on Apollo. Uh, You know, we're losing these people faster and faster, and uh, this is definitely a big blow. I think that does it, though. I think think that's a good good place to wind it down. So if you want want to read more about the uh, topics we talked about there over on the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 104. If you are in Houston uh, and you have uh, a desire to meet up or some suggestions of where we could do so, please let us know on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason on Twitter as J Snell, and you can find me as ISMH. Uh, we, of course, link stories and videos and stuff in between episodes over on our blog. Jason, could you give us a, a beautiful rendition of that URL? Well, sure. It's liftoffpodcast.com. Space. Perfect. Our uh, our next episode, we're going to talk about our time at Johnson Space Center. So we're doing some tour stuff. It's going to be fun to share share some of that. I think that's about it, Jason. So I guess I guess until our next fortnight, but also just until this weekend. Say goodbye. I'll see you in Houston, Stephen. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>